Welcome to Ahali, a series of conversations where I, Can Altay, meet with ear-opening thinkers, artists, curators, and designers to discuss the future of cultural production. Let's start with what Ahali means. Ahali refers to a community that flows, that doesn't have boundaries, yet nevertheless producing a meaningful togetherness. It is about a culture of being together, and Ahali generates knowledge that is not fixed and always open for newcomers. So, welcome to Ahali Conversations. And we are back. Our second season is pretty much about notions of practice. We will be exploring how cultural producers do their work, whether they are artists, designers, curators or writers. And together we will figure out how they position themselves within the larger context that they inhabit. So welcome back to this new season of Ahali Conversations. Katrin Böhm is an artist whose practice focuses on the collective reproduction of public space, on economy as a public realm and the everyday as a starting point for culture. Since the mid-90s, Katrin has expanded the terms of socially engaged practice by co-producing complex organizational, spatial, visual and economic forms. Many of Katrin's work stem from long-lasting collaborations. She's a founding member of the artist group My Villages, founded and worked for the Art and Architecture Collective Public Works and the Center for Plausible Economies. In 2014, Katrin founded the arts enterprise called Company Drinks. And today, we'll hear from her how working on a one-to-one scale matters for engaging with the public realm. She also walks us through the dimensions of use, how different people and entities use such projects in myriad ways. Katrin also invites us to think of other economies, such as generosity and cooperation, and reminds us that you don't have to be a trained expert to operate in such culturally constructed realms. But it is the acknowledgement of how we position ourselves as transformative actors is what matters. Also a final note before we start, we'll be sharing visual samples from the works we discuss on Instagram, so make sure to check out our account, ahali.podcast, to get glimpses of the projects that we discuss today. So Katrin, uh, you start from a very interesting proposition actually. Often artists are known to neglect or even hide the economic dimension of their activities, uh, whereas you make it the center of your practice. So how do you define artistic practice as economic practice? Well, all practice is economic practice. And I think that's a little bit the point because economy is a cultural realm. You know, economy can be seen as a public space in which we produce and co-produce and assign values and agree or disagree over values. But it's a, it's a, I see it as a public realm where values are being negotiated. The economic system we live in is, of course, very much organized around exploitation and extraction. But it doesn't mean that you can't see economy as something broader and bigger. So any practice is economic practice. And in my case, and because my practice is often a often works on a one-to-one scale, which, which you know, John, you know, like my practice very often works on the scale of what it addresses. So if I address economy, I run a business or subvert existing systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this question of one-to-one scale is, I think, something we should return to. Yeah. Uh, but in the Center for Plausible Economy, uh, with the logo and with the publications, you always refer to the image and perhaps the metaphor of the iceberg. Yeah. And again, perhaps in relation to scale, I mean, when we think about architects, planners or economists, there is this kind of abstract distance, which is most often thought of as a kind of view from high above. Whereas, I mean, in reference to Graham Gibson and also how you utilize that image, the iceberg suggests that there is a question of depth as well. And perhaps there is also the kind of question of the hidden or the invisible that may include the back alleys and that may include the inside the home, like the case of domestic labor. So maybe that's where the crucial differentiation begins with regards to or in comparison to economy as we know it. Yeah, thanks for pointing out the one-to-one scale. And I 
I had to prepare some notes for myself for, for today's talk. And the one-to-one -one scale was one of the first things I actually wanted to talk about because it's it's very important when you start talking about art or artistic practice in relation to economy. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my emphasis or the one um, of all the things you just um, referred to is to not just comment on it or reflect on the economy, but take it back through through actually practicing it differently. And there's a, I just wanted to read a very, really short, but very, very sharp quote about the one-to-one -one scale. And I would also recommend maybe to reread some of Stephen Wright's thinking mm -hmm. on the one-to-one -one scale and his lexicon towards usership. Mm -hmm. But the one-to-one -one scale quote, if I can read it, it's not very long. It's referring exactly to a situation where it's from a Lewis Carroll um, story, um, from 1893. And it's it refers to a story where, you know, landowners and farmers were like thinking about how they plan their crop. Yeah. Or like how to plan and which scale to think it on. So the scale, the scale is really important when you think about planning. So that the quote is, we very soon got to six yards to the mile. So it's about deciding on the scale. Then we tried a hundred yards to the mile. And then we came to the grandest idea of all. We actually made a map of the country on the scale of a mile to the mile. It has never been spread out, yet the farmers objected. They said it would cover the whole country and shut out the sunlight. So now we use the country itself as its own map. And I assure you, it does nearly as well. <laughs> so it's this really nice story of, you know, yeah, where do you start and where do you end? So the one-to-one -one is, is, is super important. And I think now coming back to the iceberg and Graham Gibson, so um, the institute she's connected to is the Community Economy Institute. They're using the iceberg as an image. And that image is such an easy image. It will also work on podcast because it's an iceberg and you see the top and then there's the waterline and there's the stuff you don't see. And in their iceberg, they describe, they put then words to what you can see and what you can't see. And on top, of course, it's the most um, the, the most dominant um, part of the economy that we can see. So it's like paid wage labor and the production for markets and capitalist business. So it's the kind of capitalist economy um, that's most visible and most dominant. But then under underneath the waterline, of course, there is the not-for-market um, transactions, the non-monetized economy, and the kind of in-kind voluntary economies, gift economies. Um, there's, of course, the dark sides of the economy, like slavery and children's labor, but there's bartering, cooperatives. So all the many different economies, most of us still have somehow as part of their lives, but they're under the waterline and they're kept invisible to make sure that the idea of the capitalist machine can run relentless. So the argument of, of Gibson Graham is very much take back the economy by reclaiming it as a, as a realm, as a territory we all share and participate in. Don't make it a specialist issue. You know, don't leave it to the so-called economists. Make it part of something you are shaping. And I and that's very much the starting point for my thinking. You know, I haven't started economy, but I constantly trade, you know, I constantly make deals. I constantly explain why I do something and what do I get in return. And, and and that's the point. That's the whole point of in taking back the economy to first of all say we all shape it by everything we do. And then of course transform it into a less capitalist or less capitalist dominated economy or alternative economy or other economy. But what, what's nice about the um, the iceberg image is that it's not necessarily a kind of anti-argument. It's a kind of more inclusive argument that the economy is diverse. We all practice it. Let's take it back. Yeah. And perhaps to link the this question of economy, which is somehow always already embedded in our everyday existence and all kinds of practices, and the question of the one-to-one -one scale, maybe we should discuss a little bit or hear from you a little bit about how you propose to participate or practice or produce alternatives uh, within your own work. Yeah, yeah. So I'm um, thinking like company drinks, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how, how it started or how it operates how you see yourself kind of yeah. practicing and participating in alternatives. Yeah, maybe I, I put a little 
idea in between between the iceberg and company drinks. <laughs> and it's it's many of you probably know Gregory Charlet's concept of the dark matter. Mm-hmm. When you when you read this, it's the same idea as, as the iceberg, but applied to the art world. So the art world again, in terms of an economic reality, again you see the kind of market-dominated, shiny, glossy art world on top, but it doesn't mean there's no other economic practices possible within the arts. That's an important link for me to make it more specific to artistic practice to say, of course, you know, the iceberg in the arts has exactly the same analysis. Mm -hmm. And again, it allows me to practice a non-market-orientated art without having to be anti. I do it from a more emancipatory position of saying, I organize an economy around my practice um, that fits and and that can enable my values. Company drink is art in the shape of a drinks company, yeah? So it, of course, starts from the premise that art can be many things. And in my case, I decided as a form to use a drinks company um, to practice my interest as an artist. It's very located. Like company drinks has been in existence since 2014. It's in London. It's on the outskirts of London. I live in East London. Company drinks is further east. It's almost where the former countryside started. It's at the edge of London. And what it is, it's many things. Its logo, if you go on the website, its logo is a C. And the C is consciously ambivalent, ambiguous. Like we allow people to interpret it in many different ways. Its core is, of course, the commons, yeah? How can we access and share and organize resources together? So company drinks, if you imagine it as an image, is like a... Drinks, it's a, it's a production cycle of a drinks company. Everything from like growing to picking to processing to bottling to branding to trading to drinking to reinvesting. But it's organized in a kind of, and it's obviously organized as a circular economy along the seasons. So in spring, we mainly grow. In summer, we mainly pick. In autumn, we mainly trade. And in winter, we not mainly think about how to reinvest. And all of this, each element of the cycle is done in public. So it's each element of the cycle is an offer to whoever wants to come along to join us either in growing, picking, trading, and so on. So the production cycle itself is a kind of public space that constitutes itself through the many people who come to many activities in their own interest. And that's very important. Maybe I can kind of introduce some other thoughts. I mean, you mentioned locatedness, you mentioned that it's a kind of long-term ongoing project. So I have a few questions. I mean, how do you sustain it? How do you kind of maintain these operations? How do you keep people engaged? No, thank, that's a perfect question because sorry, I got a little bit lost with the cir- cycle and circle, but it's a very important image because it means that the company itself is is organized as this kind of seasonal commoning and it's reproducing itself over and over again. And we are using a second image um, to describe company drinks. And it's it's the iceberg metaphor, but we call it economy is a drinks cabinet. So if you imagine a drinks cabinet, you have a piece of furniture and you have the bottles on top and we have that as well. And the bottles on top and we produce, you know, we produce drinks. We produce a drinks family of about 20 different drinks every year. So you see the drinks as the kind of commodity, the kind of commercial product of what we do. But then if you open the cabinet, a bit like when a bit like when you look under underneath the waterline, you see all the different economies that actually underpin this production. And in line with like Graham Gibson and this whole thinking of the diverse economy and taking back the economy, we're constantly very explicit about which different economic underpinnings allow us to do this annual cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a complete mix, yeah? So at no point are we insisting that this is financially sustainable because it isn't. And we reject it almost. So in, the, in our drinks cabinet, the economies are a mix between, of course, funds, you know, cultural funding, um, social enterprise funding, uh, donations. We, we have income from sales. Some things are for free. So it's the same kind of broader set of contributions that make it possible for us to exist. Mm-hmm. And this this often people assume because your company, you can be financially sustainable. And we are like, that's why the word company is so great, because it both describes like 
the social aspect of it, like being in good company, you know, having a reason to to be together and do things together and produce things together and consume them together. But it, it is also a kind of economic model. But we are, of course, constantly playing with rejecting this idea of being financially sustainable. Mm -hmm. And do you then expose these kind of inner workings or is there a way you exhibit also elsewhere or is it more about the internal circulation of goods, gatherings and stuff like that? Well, because it's a completely localized and ongoing company, you mm -hmm. know, of course, we, we, re we reveal it in its ongoing. So, for example, to communicate things like we all invest and take, like when we do a trip and maybe I have to explain how we work, like we go, we go picking together. So, I mean, not last year, we went picking during Corona, but until last year, we, we would go picking with about 400 to 600 people across the year and forage things and pick things and glean things. And then on those trips, we would have, instead of doing a survey, we would have a simple balance sheet for everyone to fill out in terms of what they bring to the day and what they take out, which is a very simple way of thinking about economy. What do I bring? What I, do I take out? And does it feel, does it feel fair? <laughs> um, so we have very simple mechanisms to talk about the things that we do as something we all contribute to and take from. And we don't always call it economy because it's not, you know, it's not the most attractive of, of terms when you have a family picking day. But we talk about giving and taking and balance sheets. With, within the company itself, we operate on a community economy business plan, which highly foregrounds the benefits to the community. So that's not so dissimilar from like social enterprise. We have drawings of how our economy operates in our main room in our building. Mm -hmm. And then, then the company, of course, gets used a lot in remote ways as a case study, as a partner. You know, it gets used by people elsewhere to either illustrate how artistic practice can be economic practice, how commoning can work, how food growing can work. So it gets used by others to demonstrate, but it gets used by us to, to have a continuous discussion around mm -hmm. that economy is the way we do things and the way we want to shape society. So on the one hand, it in quotations works uh, on a one-to-one -one scale, but it also can be utilized as a model yeah, or yeah. as a kind of representative. And, I mean, and then there's also, that's also in terms of scale, since we're talking about scale, there's of course always, the minute you enter business, everyone is like, so is it scalable, you know? Mm. That's, the, that's, that's, that's another how sense of scale, yeah. Well, that's the idea of how we how economy is mainly thought. You know, this kind of principle of growth. You know that we always have to grow in order to remain economically sustainable. And to to respond to this idea of scale, of course, we don't want to become big. You know, we want to be slightly bigger to create more employment. But we there's no need for company drinks, or there's no desire for company drinks to become a multinational. But there's two things happening. One is because it's communicated as a model, others take the same idea. Mm -hmm. So there's a there's a comunità frizzante in Italy, exactly oh. the same. Yeah, yeah. My brave new Alps who are very good colleagues. Nice. They were they 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 wanted to um, they wanted to think about a kind of social community enterprise um, long term, and we had a conversation, and they, and they literally said, "Can we can we use company drinks as a you know as a blueprint?" And of of course, you know, of course, they can use it. Um, but the second thing that's happening, and we're both part of the Community Economy Institute, is um, that we've launched something called the IDT which is a bit like the LTD, like the limited, mm -hmm. but it's the ITT, it's the interdependent. And it's going to be launching in March. And it's a it's a label, it's a kind of a signifier for organizations or projects like us to show scale. And there's many of them, you know, and like the idea is that through the network, many of us take on this IDT label. And that's how you demonstrate scale by being more present than expected, but not mm -hmm. by each of us. <laughs> That's amazing. And I love the fact that you are open to the idea that somebody else can completely replicate or resituate uh, company drinks in a different context. So I, I really love that. I think they, they, I mean, you can't see it right now, but we, we literally produce drinks and those drinks are super, super important. Yeah, th yeah. Those bottles are very important um, because where we work is just an 
uh, neighborhood. You know, I can't. It's it's not a place where anyone would join. No one would join this because they're interested in arts. They they're joining for many other reasons. That's why we want to be as open as I explained it earlier. But the drinks bring it to the point. Like when we go on a picking trip. So let's say a busload of people go to a black currant farm and we clean black currants for the day. Photos from the trip make it on the bottle and the fruit from the trip go into the bottle. And that bottle becomes one of many bottles that are made over the summer. So not only does it represent and document what we've been doing, but it also really embodies uh, this kind of available resource in the neighborhood, like people who know places where we can grow, people who know what we can do with the fruit, and also the kind of broad range of people who are involved in making those drinks. So the drink itself is is very important, not necessarily as a product, but as a kind of embodiment of that of that process. And also, I think one thing to distinguish is, I mean, I'm not sure if it's a kind of fruitful discussion even, but that it's not art disguising itself as something, but it's also not not art in the way that Stephen Wright oh. talks about okay. it. I mean, you mentioned Stephen; he was our first guest in the. Uh -huh. Uh, in the yeah. podcast series, so it was a nice kind of... even saved my life as an artist. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and of course, I mean, company drinks is completely organized around this idea of usership. So the many, you know, our logo, the C, as mm. I said earlier, can stand for different things. It can stand for community, commerce, cola, culture. Um, but it means that the construct company drinks can be used by many. So it's also used by me. So it's used by me as my studio. It's used by me as the place where I test ideas I have as an artist, but it's used by others. You know, it's used as a social space by others. It's used as a kind of small employer by others. It's used by the council to show how great they are. So it's it's used by many others. And, and I like that. Yeah. I mean, and, as a parenthesis, I should like note this question, like this a sense of generosity and solidarity has always been with you. I mean, we met, I think it was 2006 or 2007 when I was in London for a while. And right after we met, you were totally like, yeah, we have a desk space in our studio. Just come and use it. And nobody's using it at the moment. And that was a really, for me, pivotal moment in like getting to know you guys, get, get meeting Celine, who was also a guest in our first season, and many other things and many discussions that we had throughout that time. And in that sense, I'm always reminded when I think of you, I'm always reminded by that sense of generosity and kind of hospitality, if I may say so. Generosity is an economic practice yeah. you know it's it's sharing what you have without inserting like deals or conditions yeah um, i think what has i don't know but what has changed a little bit since i think since black lives matters last year is this concept of how far does your generosity reach mm. if you how inclusive exclusive is it ultimately and i That's something I have to ask myself and company drinks has to ask themselves, you know, is it always just people, you know, anyway, or how can you actively, yeah. how can you actively go beyond who you know? But again, I think for me, that is a complete principle of um, what kind of economy do you want? You know, do you want one that's based on sparsity where there's never enough and you can't have it? Or can you can you have an economy that's that, that's focusing on on uh, generosity and and things we do have? And at no point is it saying that we can get rid of money <laughs> <laughs> because too many of us need money super urgently. But the resources we have outside of our financial resources, we can easily use to practice and define economies. Yeah, and also another thing I always again, remind myself is at some point, I think during a discussion or something, or we were having this conversation and you said to me, like, one has to be naive to be able to uh, propose things or get started or even like do something. I'm not sure if I would use the word na naivety again, but... <laughs> And I think it really has been uh, like Graham Gibson's work is is completely um, key here because they think of those moments as emancipatory moments. Mm -hmm. You know, just because I just because I suddenly want to talk about economy 
it doesn't mean that, that I'm naive. It means it's part of my everyday practice. It's part of my lived experience. So I can always start with the parts that are very close to myself, you know. Like I can talk about the economy in the art world more than, of course, the economy at the stock market in London. But um, just because I'm not trained in something doesn't exclude me from thinking and practicing it. Yeah. And I think that's a very, very key moment. And that was also my route into architecture. I never started, studied architecture. I taught architecture because I'm interested in public space and the collective making of public space. And that enables you to think it alongside those who have studied it. Yeah. But it's a, kind of, it's a kind of transdisciplinary idea of... Many of us hold knowledge about many things and how do we use it in our practice? So my interest in economy then allowed me to see that I'm I'm practicing economy to then focus on it as a as a topic, yeah. Yeah. And maybe that's where it like your practice differentiates from the example you gave about Gregory Cholet and dark matter because as far as I'm kind of in my limited observation, he's more also in a way critical that that dark matter Uh, eventually makes the visible art economy possible yeah. and almost subsumed by it. Whereas yeah. in your case, I think you are suggesting that something that's very worthwhile and very vibrant is actually happening under the iceberg and we should, em it's emancipatory yeah. to participate in from under the iceberg. Well, but it's also about declaring things then as not just, you know, underpinning the top of the art world, Um, then, then aspects of art worlds, some art worlds have to be clear around their economic practices and maybe separate from this idea that they're just supporting the top. But those are emancipatory moments, yeah. you know. So, I mean, Charlotte's iceberg, uh, dark matter is exactly like the iceberg. You know, capitalist economy is underpinned by all other economies, but never credited. It's exactly the same. Yeah. And of course, we want to tilt the iceberg and we want to change the glossy art world. But from what position do you do it? You know, do you come come with a boat and try to tilt it? Or are you part of the iceberg and kind of grow big until a kind of <laughs> balance, until you tip the balance? <laughs> yeah. I mean, the history of art is almost like a battlefield of kind of legitimation artists have fought for distinction justification and things like that i mean even the way painting is addressed now is is kind of resting on historical moments where a bunch of painters convinced the french palace and the emperor that painting is the most important art form how will this kind of not not art practices justify their existence or because we are we are discussing that we are still part of a similar construct we are not necessarily subservient by we i mean you obviously but maybe to a certain extent myself as well but how will that tilt There's different strategies you know i'm i'm as i said i'm not the person who will hire a boat to attack the iceberg i will work from my existing position in the iceberg to like hopefully slowly tilt it um i think there is in the arts a real lack and ambition of understanding how much more we could do with the economies around us. And may, well, maybe it's a bit arrogant, but it comes from observation, also from observation in teaching and mentoring, um, that a lot of artists think of making a living from art by eventually selling their art. Um, and you look at most artists' lives, and that's rarely the case. So it's a double <laughs> problem. And not only is it unlikely that will become your income. Also, is it really desirable? And what do you, what kind of economies do you support with such a practice? So I think there is, there, I think there is a bit of laziness in thinking and, and mapping out how artistic practice is actually working economically. So as part of the Center for Plausible Economies, maybe I explain what that is. The Center for Plausible Economies is the kind of artist-led action research strand of company drinks it's the program within company drinks where we think art in relation to economy mm -hmm. um, and as part of as part of the program um, we're doing a lot of drawing and mapping exercises to draw an artist's life or an organization as the iceberg yeah like just deconstruct how how artists actually survive and under underpin their practice. And then in most cases, there's always a huge surprise, of course, that it's 
not the sales from stuff in galleries, but it's a variety of things, you know, and it's increasingly becoming rich parents. Mm. Makes it difficult in terms of who has access to actually become an artist. But away from uh, rich parents, most artists survive on a mix between a bit of teaching, a commission, uh, maybe a cheap studio or knowing someone who has a studio. It's like you knowing me, having a free space. You know, we all kind of enable our practice through this very broad mix of economies. And to become aware of this, I think, is the first, first stepping stone to say, well, this is all an economic practice already. Do I want to neglect it? Do I want to leave it behind me? Or do I want to maybe strategize on it or, or nurture it or share it more? And that, that's kind of almost simple, but not done by many artists. Yeah. And also, am I neglecting the, the real or the current condition or the situation and really investing all my energy in a kind of aspiration, which is given to me, which is shown to me, which is promoted to me, mediated to me? Or can I think of alternatives? Exactly. You know, whatever you do, it will either support or subvert a system. So I'm, of course, extremely critical of a kind of mainly market-driven art world, you know, extremely uh, critical. So then I also have to think about how much with my economic practice do I support the system? And I think we are all, you know, this idea of interdependence, there's no purist practice. We are all part of that system, but it's just a, a, an awareness to, uh, awareness of the fact that whatever you do as an artist, you, you will support or subvert a system and either allow it to reproduce or to slowly get weaker. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I think that's happening, but it's a slightly different discussion to we need an alternative. Mm. You know, there's more discussion around let's make that what exists uh, more explicit and use it. What's already there, but not talked about or not in a way uh, articulated. And not, and not recognized, yeah. Not articulated I mean, and recognized. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, we, there is also the huge question of the rural, but maybe uh, instead of going into that, this might be a good moment to open up questions from the participants today. Highly conversations are recorded together with participants who can join in the conversation with their questions. If you'd also like to take part in these live gatherings, visit ahali.space and send us a line via email. Hey again, Katrin, uh, very stimulating thoughts. Uh, you put a lot of thought about the complexities and particularities that distinguish rural, countryside and the urban. And there's a certain hierarchy between these forms of specialities in terms of how they relate with the economy and also with one another. So I wanted to ask, uh, which change do you observe that occur over the past decade, all these definitions and the identities that they ascribe to their inhabitants? And which ones do you also foresee perhaps? Thank you. Thanks for the question, because company drinks is actually, when I set it up, it was organized around those thoughts. You know, what's the relationship between the urban and the rural? And I didn't speak about it today in detail, but company drinks is rooted in a rural history of an inner city working class community. Anyway, so I think both identities are fluid. I think they've never, I mean, they haven't been fixed in the last, definitely in the last 50 years. The work we do with my villages is it not no point to define either or the other? Yeah, the work is not about a definition of a clear rural and a clear urban. The work is about the kind of interrelation and interdependence of both. What we do sometimes is to disconnect the rural from the, its geography. So I can talk about the rural in company drinks. I can talk about rural mindsets, rural histories, rural, rural memories that people have. You know, they're actual. Um, who live in Barking now. I can I can look at the landscape there and look at its rural histories, but it's never used as a kind of exclusive term to have either or. It's it's the interest of like how they sit together, how they experience next to each other, but also which qualities can enrich one or the other. So in terms of economy, there's of course economic practices within rural that are more, that have, have survived there more than in urban situations. Often gift economies like or non-monetary economies are definitely more present in villages than in central London. 
the idea that you just swap things and, you know, the village somehow share tools and so on. So there's economies that have survived in the rural more than in the urban, which are worth looking at and maybe reintroduce them in like an economic discussion uh, like we have. But yeah, I think to never think it as a kind of exclusive either or. I'm not sure if I answered your question. Once there's a there's an interesting comparison about, you know, the right um, to self-subsistence, the right to actually have the means to live your life and the right to self-expression. And maybe that's going too far now, but there's a connection between art and and the rural that, that art in a funny way still has the access to its own means. You know, I have access to make my work, and but I also have the right to self-expression And a lot of rural communities have been taking this right to self-expression. Rural communities have almost no platform to actually self-represent. They're always represented by the urban on behalf of an urban analysis or interest or so on. So overall, the relationship between the urban and the rural is, of course, that the urban is dominant because it has um, the instruments and the means and the media to do it. Um, So there's an imbalance there. But... As a lived experience, I think both are equally important and they're so interconnected and interrelated that it's super, it's impossible to, to separate them. You got me thinking, Katrin, the, I, I haven't, to be honest, invested much on the question of the rural, but how you talk about it also led me to think that the, the self-expression of the rural is its own actualization as well. It is a mode of, like the 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 activity, the building, the growing, what have you, sharing is like I'm not trying to romanticize it by any means, and I don't have too much access or knowledge, but it just resonated with me that it's simultaneously a mode of self-realization, self-sustaining, yeah. and also self-expression. I mean, that's why I said the bottles are so important. Because the bottles embody that, you know, and the, the bottles not only um, talk about we together have collectively made the something, mm-hmm. over time it also becomes a representation of, of, of this neighborhood again, which, you know, it's uh, in official language, it's described as one of those neighborhoods that's they're economically deprived. Mm. And it's just, that's such, that's just such a mean description of anyone. I mean, who wants to be described? as economically deprived, absolutely no one. And the communities who live there are either post-industrial because the biggest car factory was there until 30 years ago, or many come from rural backgrounds. So even though they have less access to financial means, it's not a portrait of themselves that any would want, would want. So that's why the bottles then become important because the bottles, as yeah, you don't see the photo, I'm really sorry, but they kind of show we do this together and it looks good, you know. Mm. Um, it, it demonstrates a certain productivity, which is super important to a lot of a lot of people's um, identity of being able and actually doing things rather than just being culturally and economically deprived. Yeah. You said earlier on, I think like you don't subscribe to the idea of financial sustainability. I'm quite curious where that comes from. I think, I think of course, as a business, you can be, or you, it's one option, you know, that you are financially sustainable. But we don't even try to claim it with company drinks as first. Um, we are not profit orientated. We work in the food industry where it's almost miraculous to make profit. We also want to emphasize the almost impossibility to make money with drinks when they're made the way we do it. And we also want to say that in times, and I mean, this is very Britain specific, in a community that has suffered from extreme austerity and cuts everywhere, why would you almost expect the weakest, the weakest financial player to have a financial success story? So I think it's also to highlight the fact that we can't think of social enterprise as solving the world and to highlight the fact that food is too cheap, but we can't ask the price because then no one pays it and we can't, um, what was the third one? And the way company drinks is run, we are focusing on, on community and not on commerce. So they're all decisions. They're not saying other companies can't do that, but they're just saying, Companies should also be allowed to run on other terms. 
There's one really fundamental thing, like half of the we produce, I mean, we're relatively small. The only way for us to be financially sustainable would be if we would sell alcohol, because alcohol makes profit, or if we would sell all our drinks outside of our neighborhood, because we can't sell our drinks with a profit where our business is, which would make it a bit of a colonial practice, you know, if you export all the added value away from the place where you generated it. So there's like, there's conditions around where we are and who we are that stop us from being financially viable. That's a provocation. And then Catherine Gibson would say, she would say, that's fine. If anyone's asking, you just say, well, yeah, our financial return is a bit slow, you know, slower than others, you know, others, other companies' financial return is quite fast, but our social return is very fast. So I think it's also to say we need to allow companies and businesses to to emphasize on other values as well. Mm -hmm. And to do that, you are treating, I mean, it is already a cultural practice, uh, but you are highlighting that this is a cultural practice and thus it should be supported as a cultural practice. Is that the... It's supported as many things, you know, our our income and our support is generated is, is very, it's, it's across. Mm -hmm. We get, there's some income from sales, um, there's some income from selling services, there's income from providing social services to the council, there's income from getting commissions. But I'm, I'm, I don't like, uh, I'm, I'm really resisting the idea that we rely on um, other support to exist mm. because whoever is giving us money, it's a deal. <laughs> Yeah, no, that was the point I wanted to provoke, actually. So, And I think, but it's a little bit specific because we're, we're within the food industry, and I've, it's probably very different in Turkey, I, I, I wouldn't know, but the food industry in Britain is brutal. It's dominated by the very big supermarkets, and it's domi the, the, the food economy is dominated by food that's too cheap. You know, we all know this, it's cheap food that's exploiting the earth, and someone else is going to uh, pay the cost later. So if you want to have a kind of ethical food production, the prices would have to be much higher, which us being a small company in a neighborhood um, where people can't pay three pounds for a drink, it becomes a little bit of an impossibility. That's what I'm trying to say. It becomes an impossibility. No, it's good. I mean, it's of course, it's good that you are articulating this. And thanks for the question, because it kind of filled a probably important missing a link for us in terms of situating company drinks because we 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 kind of kept um reflecting on this you know how much money could we make can we make an, can we actually make enough money and uh, the, the 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 answer was we would have to streamline drinks production and scale and then our decision as an organization was we don't want to do this. We want to prioritize community and this collectivity. Um, so it's a it's a very conscious decision, um, but it doesn't mean we don't function as a as a company. And I'm I'm really not against any business that makes profit. I think it's great, you know, if it, as long as you do it ethically, and uh, you know all your kind of transactions are fair. That's great. A lot of businesses have to make profit for finance to circulate. But I also, we use it more as a provocation to say, don't expect community projects to solve the world. And again, it's a bit of a British context because David Cameron had this idea of like big society and social enterprise and community initiatives um, will compensate for government's shortcomings. And that's why it's a provocation to say, no, we can't, you know, certain things need to be supported Um, by by wider society, and then businesses on top can make profit. Um, but we can't look after people and offer free social service and education and exist within a really harsh food market and make a profit. Yeah, I think it was about the impossibility of a certain market logic that doesn't work at the moment. Yeah, thanks for elaborating. Do we have other questions or comments? Yeah, I would like to know this one thing. Which is the one drink that you will recommend to a first-timer amongst the range of the company drinks? Well, opinions are different on what's our best drink. I have to say our drinks are very good, which is good. So people don't buy it out of pity, but they <laughs> buy them because they actually like them. I think our my favorite drink is a black currant soda. And it's a, it's an interesting story because the black currant we get from a farm, a huge industrial farm, 
really big kind of monocultural grower. And I don't know if you know Ribena. It's a very British drink. It's a black currant cordial, like a black currant concentrate. And so all the black, it's connected to World War II and uh, vitamin C um, distribution. But anyway, so Ribena is a mega product. Everybody, every child knows Ribena. It's owned by a Japanese multinational, but the food is still grown in Britain. So there's still big farmers who are contracted. So we go gleaning. Do you know the word gleaning? It's when you, in, in, in agreement with a farmer, it's when you harvest what's left after the commercial harvest. If, like, so in English, it's called gleaning. Um, so we go to this farm once they've been through with their machines. So they obviously pick what, I don't know, 80 tons of black currant. Um, but the machines don't pick everything. So we pick what's left and make a drink that's, in principle, it's very similar to the Ribena you get in every supermarket, but tastes so different because it tastes of fresh fruit. It's a beautiful, beautiful drink. And it's quite a good drink we have. And people can recognize that it's the same fruit, but a very different flavor. Um, because the Ribena you get in supermarkets has a shelf life of 10 years. You know, it's packed with <laughs> chemicals. And our, our drinks, and again, that's why we can't be commercially successful. Our drinks are only have a shelf life of only six months. Which is, which is a very short uh, shelf life uh, for food um, to distribute well. But it's my favorite drink and it's, it's just the most beautiful flavor of summer. Fantastic. Well, I have one bonus question as well. This was beautiful. Thank you again. But you, in the beginning, you mentioned the word form and the company becoming a form. And, but you, there is also a visual language that you, in a way, I think personally utilize quite often. And I see it also seeping into publications of the Center for Plausible Economies. And sometimes it seeps into the settings you create for company drinks. That's the tape, the use of the tape and uh, making shapes and texts by using the tape. And to me, it's like a very direct, I mean, I, I also saw you do it in real life so it's very direct but it also in a way relates to mending it maybe relates to kind of in my at least in my cosmology it relates to maintaining fixing but also fixing things in place and drawing lines in a way so i just wanted to ask if you had something to say about the tape well, I tape a bit like other people use a pencil. Like I tape to visualize thoughts and I like the pace of it. You know, it's fast enough to make a big impression, but it's slow enough to edit quite well what you want to say because you can't tape an essay. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can tape a slogan or you can tape an iceberg or you can tape something with like six words on it. So it's a good editorial tool to make, to fill a whole wall with an idea, but you have to edit the slogans, the language. So it's it has a good pace, but a, a good a good impact. And it's cheap. Great. <laughs> <laughs> no, this was beautiful. Thank you so much, Catherine. And the drinks are similar. You know, we go to a park and pick flowers and put them in sugar water and that's a syrup. You know, it's not complicated. It then is complicated to turn it into a sustainable business. <laughs> Just, you know, all those other things are complicated to change politics and change society. But the actual act of getting together and using something around you to do something together that's useful is really simple. And to do it in a way, and I think that was always public works and it's also like with company drinks, to do it in a, in a way that allows many different people to join with their own interest. And that, that's the beauty of company drinks for me. You know, there are some people who are absolutely not interested in alternative economies, but they still like company drinks. Some people just want a free drink absolutely fine others want to bring all their knowledge about herbs and the, the use of local plants so that's really important to organize interest around the actuality of making things yeah well i mean now i mean i was ready to close but you tapped on something really crucial so <laughs> How do you how do you oversee this kind of organizing and incorporating others into these projects not only as participants or not even only as users, but also as users and makers of the whole thing. Yeah, I think I think I've, to, to answer that question, I learned a lot from, you must know Doina Petrescu, yeah. no? and, and I think because they, you know, they do long-term programs and they, they map, they literally map 
with what interest people arrive and where they are three years later. And it's often a transition. And I think it's to allow for this transitional space of someone to come with whichever interest and then, you know, maybe really intensify their interest, but also drop, drop away again. But I think this fluidity of being able to take on different roles is super, super important. I wish, in that sense, I really wish we would make more money. I think it would, would, it would be nice if we could offer more paid mm. work. Um, we do a little bit. But yeah, I think to, to have it as a space where you can experience different roles, and it's not just the producer and the consumer. Um, to give an example, we... There was a big food exhibition the, at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London, which is one of the big, 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 big national museums. And it was a big, 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 big exhibition. And they they invited company drinks to be there. And they were the curators were clever enough to say, well, the best representation of your project is a bar. There was a bar with our drinks there for, for like six months. And then, of course, everybody who's part of making the drinks comes to that exhibition. And normally a resident that area would be seen as those kind of culturally deprived people you have to like outreach to to make them come to your to your to your institution but in that case they came as cultural producers of something that's in the exhibition so they came as cultural producers of the city where the museum is and i think this transition in positions is is our roles is super important and i think it's more than just producer and consumer you know it can be there, there's a lot of yeah. nuance to, to to the spectrum no i think that was a great note to remind ourselves and of these positions and our also presuppositions around who gets to produce culture and how is it framed and then how is it kind of put forth to be received yeah. towards reception by a big mass, whereas there are many layers to it. And I mean, your project demonstrates it quite clearly and strongly. Thank you for joining us in this conversation. Make sure to check out the show notes to find out more about what we've discussed today. There's an extensive list of links and information down there. You can also visit us at ahali.space in the interweb or get some visual insights at ahali.podcast via Instagram. I guess it goes without saying, but we really appreciate you spreading the word and supporting us by subscribing, rating, following, or whatever works for you. This was Ahali Conversations with me, Jan Altai, and we hope to see you next time. Yeah.